Welcome, everybody, to episode number 52 of Sports Cards Live on October 7th, 2020. Happy to be here. Happy to have you joining us and happy to have our guest, Ezra Levine, who will be coming out in a couple of minutes. Before we get to that, I do want to thank last Wednesday's guest, Jordan Hagedorn of For the Hobby. Also, he's an NFL agent. You might want to check that episode out. It was a lot of fun. Great discussion. I also want to thank this past Saturday's guest, Jake Roy from YouTube's 90s B-Ball Cards, as well as Carlos from Because I'm Carlos, who joined me on After Hours. This coming Saturday, my guest will be Drew Herndon from Let Me Get That Potograph podcast. He's also a co-host of Hobby Hotline on YouTube. And then this coming or next Wednesday, my guest will be Ryan Johnson, but you may know of him as Card Collector 2. On Instagram, he has almost 40,000 followers on there, and he's the organizer of Trade Night at the National. Uh, welcome. I want to welcome all new viewers. If you're new to tonight's show, thank you very much for joining. Thank you to Ezra for bringing new guests to the show tonight and Collectible for that. Greatly appreciated. If you are new, I want to mention the episodes in the archive. They are long. These episodes are usually around two hours long, but if you're going to go back and watch some, I encourage you to go see who, which guests do interest you. Check them out. Watch them in chunks. 15 minutes here, 20 minutes there. YouTube will always remember where you left off. If you haven't yet subscribed, please do subscribe to the YouTube channel. Greatly appreciate that if you'd consider doing so. Almost at 1,200 subscribers. Very pleased with that. So thanks, everyone, who has already subscribed. Stay tuned till the end of the show. We're going to do the Sports Cards Live 5 questions, as well as Card of the Day, an amazing card for my personal collection that I'm looking forward to sharing with everybody. As always, your questions and comments are in play tonight, so don't be shy. Fire away. Ezra is here to answer your questions. And I just want to mention Friday night, LeBron one game away from his fourth championship. And I'm wondering, is, is a fourth chip already built into the value of his cards? Perhaps we can talk about it a little bit later tonight. If not, we'll save it for another time, but I'm sure we will get to that eventually. All right, on to tonight's guest. Listen, this guy, he discovered sports cards when he was five years old as his father was immersed in the hobby. His childhood cards are somewhere in his parents' apartment where he grew up as a fan of the, of the Yankees, the Knicks, the Giants, and the New York Rangers. He joined Collectible in January of 2020 as CEO with the mandate to build the fractional ownership business and app, which he and his team launched last month with the offering of a 1953 Topps PSA 10 Mickey Mantle card, as well as a PSA 10 1986 Fleer Michael Jordan rookie card. Hailing from New York City, New York, let's bring him out. Ezra Levine, welcome to episode 52, Sports Cards Live. How are you doing tonight, my friend? Doing great. I'm doing great. It's, uh, you know, it's funny. I was telling you backstage that I'm very much a morning person. My day starts at 5 a.m. So I have a tall cup of coffee over here to my right. If you if you guys see me sipping it throughout the course of this conversation, that's why. But, you know, we're excited to be here to talk about collectible. Um, Jeremy, you're, you know, you're producing unbelievable content. Congratulations on, on your 52nd uh, episode here. And we're excited to uh, to interact and to share our concept with your viewers. Well, thank, thank you, Ezra. I appreciate that uh, very much. Thank you so much. So let's get right into it with the jump ball question, which is going to be tonight. Tell everybody, why would somebody invest in a share of a collectible, a, a piece of memorabilia, a card that they can't really touch, feel, or hold instead of just going out and buying the item themselves? Absolutely. It's a great question. 
you know, our primary mission at Collectible is access, is breaking down barriers for this industry. It's expanding this industry to participants of all income brackets all across the country and ultimately all across the world. Our mission, right, simply is to provide access. We want to give people access to the upper end of this marketplace where historically financial returns are to be had. The problem has been for long periods of time that the returns and the upper end of the market has only been available to wealthy collectors. That's a fact. Collectible is here to change that. How? We do it through fractionalization. It's really a widely accepted and honestly not a novel concept in general, but it's a novel concept for the memorabilia and cards category. Think of it like this. Facebook, a publicly traded company, a near trillion dollar business. It would be nearly impossible for somebody to acquire uh, Facebook outright. It's hard to come up with a trillion dollars, especially if you're a retail investor. But the average retail investor could probably afford to own shares of it. One share is around $250. That's the exact same concept that we're applying for the card category and the memorabilia category, right? With our first offering, a 53-mantle PSA 10, a $2.5 million card. Right. Like the average sports fan cannot can never afford a two point five million dollar card. They might love to have a slice of it, a fraction of it, a share of it for twenty five bucks in their portfolio, but they can never afford to own the physical card. Right. So that's what collectibles mission is to democratize this industry, to provide an access point for people all across the country, all across the world to access the high end of the sports collectibles industry in a way that has never been possible before. That, that makes sense to me. You know, like you said, it's like buying a share of a corporation that is traded on an exchange. This is sim very sim in simple terms. It's pretty much the same thing. And I like mm -hmm. how you said that, you know, traditionally these high-end items have only been available to the wealthy. If I, I think about myself, it's like, you know, you see these gains that have been happening and it's like, well, I could have earned them too if I had half a million dollars to invest in this card a few years ago, but I didn't. So instead I bought a card for $250 and maybe it doubled in value and I made a profit of 250, but I missed out on investing half a million to turn it into 2 million or a hundred grand to turn it to five, right? So it's like, it's kind of like the rich get richer in a way. So this is opening it up to, uh, to, to common people democratizing it, as you said. I think that's a great way to put it. Awesome. Okay. So now that we understand that, give us a bit of an idea really about Collectible as a company, because my understanding is that it's been around for a little bit, but it wasn't always into fractional ownership. What was what what, what was the company doing uh, prior to 2020? This is a great opportunity to give a little bit of a hat tip to uh, the people who really created our company back in 2014. The company was co-founded by two longtime hobbyists, David Yokin and Jason Epstein. And the original concept was to do a sports auction data aggregation service. Effectively, you could go onto Collectible, type in anything that you want to see, and pull up uh, accessibly in one destination the auction results for that item, I believe dating back to the 1970s. So that was the company's history. We were in the marketplace for about four years. We rose to the number one a sports auction data service on the market. We had over 20,000 users. 
We developed a good reputation within the industry, a lot of connections within the, within the industry. The fractionalization opportunity really started to emerge and become viable back in 2018. And it was Jason Epstein who led the company through that transition to set out to find a new management team, a new CEO for the business. I was just in the right place at the right time. Uh, I happened to meet Jason, fell in love with this fractionalization opportunity, and the rest is history. Okay, so the company's actually been around since 2014, doing a few other things, and and come 2020, what was the what was kind of the aha moment? Like, I know you you joined in January 2020, but was there sort of an aha moment for these guys when when they decided that fractionalization was the way to go, or uh, or were you a part of that yourself when you got there? Yeah, they they were the ones who initially stumbled upon fractionalization. The two co-founders were, again, longtime hobbyists, longtime collectors who felt the same way a lot of us do, right? Which is, you know, that this has been a game which has been slightly rigged to the people who can afford to play at the high end of the band, right? And so the idea of fractionalization made it possible for people of all income brackets to participate. Uh, you know, my, my personal background is I was working on Wall Street. I was in Wall Street for about 10 years. I have a, a financial markets meets sports entrepreneurial background. Um, I've been submerged in the hobby, as you mentioned in your intro, ever since I was born. My dad is a longtime collector. So I, I grew up around the hobby. I grew up, um, you know, sort of knowing about sports collecting. Right. Uh, you know, but what I loved was the ability to apply widely accepted financial market principles to, again, to democratize this industry, to provide access points for this industry, right? To expand on the amount of people who can appreciate this industry. I think all of us, and I'm sure all of your, all of your followers and your viewers who you know, stay up at 10 o'clock at night to watch the show, you guys are all hobbyists too. You guys all love this industry, right? So you know, I, think, I think it's really, you know, what I love is the ability to expand on the hobby we love, right? And so, and so that's what really attracted me to this as well. What we also have seen, and you know, it's something that we say a lot at Collectible, uh, what we love about it is it's the opportunity to merge two things, passion and profits, right? People are generally very passionate about sports. They're passionate about collectibles. They're incredibly passionate about this hobby. But there's also money to be made. There's profits to be had. And if you look at the data sets, and the data sets are pretty clear, right? The long-term returns have been at the upper end of the market. And that marketplace has never been affordable to average collectors like us before. Now, luckily, through companies like Collectible, it is. And I think that's a really uh, cool thing, a really fun thing for the hobby. And, you know, I expect this fractionalization concept, I'm biased in saying so, but I expect this fractionalization concept to really just be getting going here. Yeah, I, I don't doubt it, man. I, I think it's going to as well. And, you know, there might be uh, a little bit of apprehension towards it by the traditional collector who, you know, like my original question was, why would you buy it if you can't touch, feel, hold it? But it's, you know, you don't buy a share of Facebook, for example, or a share mm -hmm. of Apple and walk around the hallways of the company and go talk to the to the staff there, right? You're, you're, you're just on the outside. You just own this type that you, you just own a, a share of it and you, and that's it. You let them go about their business here. You own a, you own a share of the, of the collectible and, uh, and, and you, again, you go about your business and you can check in and see what it's worth uh, sort of at any given time. I would think before we jump in and get into more specifics on how it works, I just want to say hello to some of the viewers that are here 
And we do have a couple of questions that have already kind of started to flow in. So we'll get to that. Jordan, want to say hi to you, Jordan. Welcome to the show. Terry, good evening to you as always. Mike, welcome back. Matt14K, good evening to you. Uh, Mike says, welcome to our crazy little corner of the world, Ezra. Wait till Jeremy starts hitting you with the overlays. Yes, later on, later on, Mike, later on. Francisco, Frankie says, what's up, everyone? Good to be here. Good to see you, Frankie. Thanks for coming by uh, yet again. Sam, what's happening, buddy? Yeah, where have you been, bro? You haven't been around for a while, but it's good to have you back. And uh, nice to see you, my friend. Nice to see you. Uh, a couple questions now coming in, Ezra. So sure. Terry wants to know, can Canadians buy shares? Are there yeah. any tax implications? You knew this one was coming. I For whatever reason, our friendly neighbors up north do not recognize the uh, Reg A exemption, which is how Collectible is able to do what we're doing. So if the law changes, we'll, we'll be the first people to go into Canada. It's, it's a bummer that we can't, but, um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's the law right now. And just, you know, I just, I just want to go back to your previous comics. I thought that was really interesting. You know, we're talking about, um, you know, these new entrants not being overly widely accepted by the hobby, at least initially. Right? And, you know, the, the beauty of it is that I had the chance to kind of witness this firsthand as somebody who's been around the hobby my entire life, right? Like I remember, you know, when grading companies first became popular, maybe, I don't know, probably 30 years ago, right? Everyone was skeptical of grading companies. This is a flash in the pan. This isn't gonna last, right? And, you know, you can look at grading companies now and there's no doubt that that's a widely established part of this hobby and an incredible, an incredibly important piece of this hobby. You can say the same thing about breakers, right? Breaker culture, you know, you go back 10 to 15 years, that was trounced on and stomped on by, you know, by insiders and, and diehard collectors. And, and that's something that's brought a lot of growth and a lot of innovation to this industry. So I can understand skepticism. I do. I completely get it. Change is uncomfortable. And we're definitely applying a different way of doing things uh, to this industry. But, you know, I think really what we're trying to do is grow this industry together and provide different access points. We're not trying to replace, you know, the institutions that have been in place for as long as we've known them, we're not trying to substitute physical collecting. We're just trying to give a different way to invest and to own uh, shares in stuff that people just would not be able to either afford or be able to get their hands on any other way. Yeah, man. I mean, I hear you. And I like, I like what you said earlier about um, grading companies and breaker culture and all that. I said to somebody else, totally, even you know, a couple of weeks ago, I think that you know this fractionalization. It's I believe it's going to stick around, and it's only going to get bigger, and it's going to really get big. Like it's going to become second nature with the hobby, just like those other uh, concepts are. Um, you know, it, you you think back to the early 1900s. I mean, if you can remember back that far, I know I can't, but I mean, even you know back then, you know. You, you either owned a company or you didn't. There was no owning a piece of it, so to, so to speak, until until the whole you know concept of public markets came around and common shares and the ability to do that. I mean, a lot of corporate law had to had to come around, uh, evolve in order for that to happen. And now, really, the way I see it with what you guys are doing and some of the others is that you're just mirroring what's already going on. So it's not a new concept. It's just a new concept for collectibles. And even that said, Ezra. I don't think I told you this the other day, but you know, a couple of years ago, I just did a small little fund myself. I raised like small amount of money between five friends, bought some cards and put them away. We still have them and we'll sell them one day and we'll all make some money. So, you know, I'm sure there's that sort of casual 
um, approach that's been taken by people, but you guys have formalized it. So a lot of people are, they're still asking about where, you know, who can, who's it open to? Um, so it's not open to Canadians right yet because Canada doesn't recognize something called the reg. It's the regulation a exemption, which I believe is a, is a, a U.S. term yep. that allows people to invest in call it riskier investments. I believe similar to being an accredited investor in Canada, you you know, if you're accredited, you can invest in whatever you want because you're deemed to be able to absorb the loss. But if you're, but you're only accredited if you have like, a you know, well, I forget the, you have to make $200,000 a year. You have to have a million dollars in liquid assets. Then the, the government, the regulators figure, Oh, you can, you can absorb a loss if you get into it. So is that really what, what's holding you back from being able to, uh, to offer shares in Canada? It's a great question. I don't. I, I don't really know exactly why Canada is the only country, to my knowledge, who is not recognizing this. I mean, I can just talk more about you know what exactly Reg A and Tier Two Reg A is. Uh, the beauty of this is that we're able to um, you know effectively crowdsource liquidity and ownership for people who are both accredited and non-accredited. Right. So that's the beauty of our model. Is the only qualifications really is you have to be a real person and you have to be over the age of eighteen. If you meet those qualifications, then you can invest in our offerings. And, you know, so that, that was something, again, going back to this theory or this concept of access and, and you know, sort of opening up barriers to entry. We felt very strongly that if we're going to do this, you got to do it the way it's meant to be done. And that's you got to give access to sports fans, collectors, hobbyists, investors, however you want to call people. you got to give people access. Right. And so yeah, doing doing what we're doing is not it is not a sexy process. There's a lot of regulation. There's a lot of securities work. There's a lot of legal work. There's a lot of fees and friction points. But we're doing it because we a, we think it's a big opportunity, of course. We're, we're businessmen just like anyone else's. We think this is a big opportunity. But B, you know, we're also, we love this industry. We love this hobby. We, you know, we love sports, right? So, you know, here's a way for us to, um, you know, give a little bit back to this industry, but also to just create uh, new access points to the hobby in a way that we think is, you know, highly complimentary to people who love to physically collect and highly complimentary to people who believe that sports cards and memorabilia is a viable alternative asset class. Right. And I think we're, we're in this. I won't go too financy here, but, you know, I think we're in this financial environment, at least, where people are looking for alternative investments. Right. People are looking for ways to make money. You know, you look at interest rates. Right. You're not getting anything on your money. anymore. You look at stocks. There's been this ridiculous you know, swing in the markets this year that for a lot of people just don't really understand why the market's up in period in this unbelievable turbulent period we're going through. Right. So I think that this, you know, renewed interest in sports cards in particular, but memorabilia overall as an investment class is really starting to take shape. And what I can say from you know, firsthand knowledge is that there's also a lot of money coming into this space. I think that's an underappreciated thing. There's a lot of institutional capital, a lot of heavy hitters who are investing in sports cards and memorabilia, perhaps for the first time, right? And this industry is big, but it's not that big, right? So you have a couple major, major players who step up and commit some capital to it. And, you know, that can really take this industry a lot higher than what I think people think is possible. Yeah, man, I agree with all that, and and with what you're doing now, I think it's. It, I think because I'm a I'm a believer in the idea of what you're doing, and I think it's gonna I think it's gonna survive for a very long time. 
Um, do you need to be a U.S. resident or do you need to have a social security number? What if you, uh, we have a, uh, David here wants to know, is it possible to get shares overseas in Europe through your co company Collectible? So it is, it's legally possible. Uh, we have not opened up international markets yet. We just launched four weeks ago. We're really just trying to, you know, nail our core markets so far. You know, we also believe that our offerings, you know, baseball, basketball, football, right, for the most part, so far at least, that's just, you know, sort of core U.S. But we definitely plan on expanding it internationally, and hopefully it's sooner rather than later. Okay, awesome. I want to say good evening to Paul Cashman. Great to see you. All-time greats blog. Welcome to the show. I'm going to put this one up even though we've answered the question, but uh, Karn says, hey, Ezra, big fan. Will there be an opportunity for Canadians to buy shares as well? Of course. Um, and uh, Jordan S. Uh, just sort of says, okay, so only available to U.S. residents with social security number at this point in time, I believe. So he goes on to say, uh, did you have to register as an as a MSB or with the SEC? Yep. Uh, we are qualified by the SEC. We're okay. So, and do you have to, so, so they're, they're the regulator. Do they, do they in essence regulate you and do you have to report to them on a regular basis with what's going on in the company? Sure. Yeah. So we, we are a registered entity with the SEC. Um, the tier two reg A space is not as stringent when it comes to reporting requirements as say a publicly traded company would be, for instance, we only have to report our, our financial statements uh, on a, a biannual basis every six months, whereas if you're a public company, you have to do it on a quarterly basis. But in a lot of ways, it's very similar. It's a, it's a very similar concept. So yeah, I mean, again, I, I want to stress this to the audience. It is a painstaking process. We're, we're, we're going through hoops to, to make this possible, but we think this is a really uh, you know amazing opportunity for sports fans, for investors, for collectors all across, you know, the world ultimately, uh, and that we're, we're really excited for the industry. We really are. We're excited for Collectible, but we're excited for the industry. And again, you know, this is something that's really just getting going. We hope this is a multi-decade trend, which is just emerging. You know, the, the, this space definitely is fluid. We're at the early stages of it, but uh, it's a pretty cool thing we're able to do. And it is a qualified entity by the SEC. And uh, yeah, again, we're, we're just excited to be here. Well, man, I work I work sort of in the financial world as well. And so I, I can only imagine what your professional fees have looked like to get you guys launched. I, I know it, it's uh, it's it's not it's not easy and it sure isn't uh, inexpensive to, to launch a company like this. All right. Canner Collect says go blue. Welcome to the show. Facebook user. I'm not sure who what your name is, but good evening to you. Mike says I've dabbled a little with rally. What are your differentiators? We will get to that. There we go. Good to know. Thanks for asking. Uh, great. Glad you like that. And what's this question here? Jordan says, and how often do you do you run audits and who are those currently done by? Let's say you buy a card for X and owners want proof of ownership, et cetera. That's, I mean, Jordan's coming out swinging here tonight. Um, yeah. First of all, you wouldn't, first of all, you guys wouldn't run an audit. You would be audited. Your auditor would run it. Are you subject to financial statement audit? Yeah, we, we work with accountants, we work with a broker dealer, uh, we work with a transfer agent, there are numerous vendors uh, who we need to run our things by. Users will get almost like a K-1 um, in March, right, which, which states you know, what they own and their, and their ownership. So yeah, it is a, uh, again, a painstaking process, a labor of love, but we're excited to be doing it and we think it's a big opportunity, both for collectibles as a company, but for the industry at large. Awesome. 
Want to welcome Rich. Welcome. Hey, Jar Ezra. Interesting topic to topic tonight. Yes, this is a it's a great topic. I think we're at the beginning of something here. I think I think that we will look back on this discussion, you know, one, two, five, ten years down the road. And uh, we might just sort of laugh at how big this whole idea has gotten in our hobby. All right, let's let's get into some more sort of um, some more sort of detail here, Ezra, if you don't mind. So, you know, I've heard you refer to the term uh, series, meaning that you're going to offer a series of shares out to the public. And so before I go any further, can you explain what a series is? Sure. Yeah, a series really is just, it's a company, really. I, I'd put it simple, right? It's a company that owns an asset. In this particular case, the assets happen to be high value sports collectibles. So, you know, I would think of it as a separate LLC, almost like a holding company, which owns that particular asset. And people who invest in these offerings are equity holders in that company that holds the asset. Okay, awesome. So can a series Mm -hmm. own more than one item? Sure. Yeah, we, we've been experimenting with the concept uh, we, we call baskets, right? I would think of them as almost mini portfolios. We rolled out our first basket concept. It was a basket of three uh, Stephen Curry rookie cards for $40,000. That was, I believe, our third offering we did on a collectibles platform. Uh, we've got a Lamar Jackson rookie card uh, uh, basket coming out. We've got some other basket concepts coming out. So yes, uh, a series, it is possible for a series to own multiple assets, but it'll be considered know, one company, right? So, you know, people who invest in that uh, offering and that company own any of the assets that are in there. So these assets, you guys are are receiving them from the public, someone, a a collector, uh, an investor, whomever can come to you and say, hey, I've got this card. I've got this item, this asset. I want to, I want, I want to, I want to, I want a a liquidity event here. I want to put, I want to maybe sell all of it or some of it, which leads to the question, can the original owner retain ownership in the card after they uh, give it to you, consign it to you, however, however you, you want to put that? They can. And this is something that really differentiates collectible and something that we felt uh, incredibly strongly about when we launched collectible, this concept of retained equity, right? And, you know, if you think about it again, I, I don't want to keep bringing up stock market and, you know, and the parallels to that, but it is, it's the exact same concept, right? Like when, when companies IPO in the public markets, it is very common for the management team insiders to retain a degree of ownership in the company that they ultimately float a portion of it to the public. That's the same concept we're applying here, right? People who have these high value, high value collectibles, maybe they want to get liquidity, maybe they want to diversify, maybe they want to take some chips off the table. There are a million reasons why sellers or consigners might want to sell a partial stake in it, right? You know, I think this added seller flexibility, to be honest with you, has really given us a tremendous amount of leverage in bringing the best possible supply to fractional owners, right? It is hard, as you as you know, as everyone in this, uh, you know, uh, show knows, right? People have real emotional attachment to the things that they own. It is not easy to get your hands on some of the best items in sports. It's an easier sell when you say, look, you're, you don't have to give it all up. You can sell a portion of it and you still retain that financial upside in the future, right? So again, 
you know, we're, we're going to talk, I'm sure, a lot about what differentiates collectible from other fractional platforms, right? This is a core, a core thing that does. We are the only company in this space that allows sellers to retain a degree of equity in the offerings. And that really allows us to get the best possible supply you can imagine for fractional owners. Again, all income brackets all across the country, uh, ultimately all across the world and soon Canada, hopefully. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So if I have a card that's worth a hundred grand, just to use a number and I want to retain 90% of it, but I want to, I want to lick, I want to liquidate 10. I want, I want a liquid event for 10%, a liquidity event to put 10% of the value in my pocket. Cause say that's what I, I'm into for 10 grand. I want to get my 10 grand out. I want to retain 90%. Will you let me, is that something that I can do with collectible? Send the card to you. You sell off 10%, take your fee and then we move along. Uh, it definitely is case by case in terms of how much equity we allow sellers to retain. Right. So, I, you know, it, we typically take a greater chunk than 10. Uh, that, that would definitely be on the low end of what we would like to get from consigners, from sellers. But yeah, I mean, look, if we're able to bring something that we couldn't bring to fractional owners any other way, it could be something we would consider. Right. So we, we're pretty opportunistic. We're, pr we're pretty flexible. Our mandate, again, is to provide the best supply, the best opportunities for fractional owners, right? And so, yeah, we don't we don't like to say no to anything until we evaluate it. But typically, we would like more uh, equity offered to the public than 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 that amount. Yeah, I think I asked the question because I think I saw somewhere on your on your site that said, or maybe it was in an offering document that said that um, you typically want to be able to offer at least forty percent of the value of of the item to the public. Is that just sort of a placeholder? Because I'm I, and I really. I really think it's awesome. You guys are flexible and you're willing to kind of work with, with the, the consigners in the market, but is, is, is a minimum of say 40% uh, of the asset to be offered. Is, is that kind of a general rule that you, you kind of want to be able to abide by? It is. It is. Yeah. I think, I think that's a fair expectation. Again, you know, could there be scenarios in which we lower that? Absolutely. Right. If we're able yeah. to get our hands on some unbelievable items and it means if we only get 25%, would we consider that? We would consider that. We would consider anything, quite honestly. We're opportunistic. Uh, we're flexible. That's the beauty of being a startup is, you know, you, you can definitely be flexible. But again, you know, our sole job is to provide opportunities to people who would never otherwise have it to democratize this industry and uh, really just to provide the best possible supply to fractional owners, any income bracket all across the world. Um, and so again, we're just excited about this opportunity and really excited to bring innovation to the industry and in what seems like something that was destined to happen, but we're happy to be one of the first movers in the space. All right, I, I love the flexibility that you guys, uh, that you guys are, are, just that you're aware that you're, that, that number one, you may, you know, you may be called on to be flexible and number two that you, you kind of, I think you're somewhat expecting it. And I think that that's going to allow you to uh, maneuver the space quite well. So kudos for that. Uh, Mike wants to say, remember to hit the thumbs up button and like the video. It helps make sure Jeremy can continue to bring this great content to us and fix the window above his grill. <laughs> yeah. The window above our barbecue uh, shattered a few weeks ago because the heat of it got too close and the gas inside made a pop. So anyway, my wife hasn't uh, lived that one down yet. She was barbecuing that night. I'll admit it. Ziggy, welcome to the show. Great questions and conversations. Appreciate that. Karn, um, we are going to get into the buy sell system and trading shares. That is definitely coming up. 
Terry, as well as the where they're stored and all that. This, these are all on the agenda. Simon, welcome to the show. No need to apologize for being late, uh, but we'll be trying to buy as many of the high-end cards as possible. Apologies for being late to the show, but sorry, Simon, I don't understand the question, but uh, just ask it again and we will definitely come back to it. Ezra, okay, I was really curious as to um, the owner retaining ownership. So as an, to continue on with my example, but let's say this time it's going to be a 50-50 split. I'm the owner. I'm going to keep 50%. I'm going to send you the card. You guys are going to keep it. You're going to safeguard it, and you're going to sell off 50% of the, of the card. Sure. What happened? Two, two questions come from that. The first is, what happens if that 50% doesn't sell out within the offering time? And the second question is, um, does collectible take any shares of the card for themselves? Sure. Yeah. Um, what? So your your first question is, what happens if an offering fails to sell out within a set time period, right? So yeah. generally how it works is we enter into agreements with a consigner or a seller to be able to fractionalize their items over a period of time. This is usually six months, right? Luckily, we haven't encountered this issue. I hope we never do. For a little context, we've had four offerings so far. The first offering was a, a 53 mantle PSA 10 valued at $2.5 million. We sold a million dollars of it in our first IPO. We shattered the all-time sports fractional IPO record by almost $480,000 on day you know, 10. I think we sold it out day 10, right? The previous record was held by our competitor, Rally Road, who did a, a Honus Wagner card for 520,000. We sold a million on our first offering. Uh, each consecutive offering we've done since, have, the sellout periods have been shorter and shorter. For instance, we did a Jordan PSA 10 last Thursday, which sold out in nine minutes for $100,000. There were over 150 investors who bought $10 shares in a Jordan PSA 10, right? So, and by the way, the quick sellouts are a blessing and a curse, right? They're a blessing because that's great. It's great that we're able to sell out. It's great that there's a lot of demand for it. But, you know, again, our job, what we like to do is just get as many people to be able to participate and to be able to experience high-end collectibles, perhaps for the first time. And so, you know, you, you can expect as we continue to scale and ramp up that we're going to have a lot more offerings. We're going to have a lot of big ticket items. We have over $30 million worth of items we've consigned already. Uh, so again, I can say confidently that some of the items that we're going to put up truly are items that the uh, sports collectibles industry in a lot of cases have never seen transact before, right? So pretty pretty cool stuff happening. Pretty cool stuff happening. So yeah, again, we've never, we've, we've never luckily had the experience where items haven't sold. Uh, there is a process in case that happens. I hope we never have to use it. But effectively, it would be just like an auction house putting up something with a reserve price. The reserve price is not hit, and the item goes back to the consignment. Okay, interesting. And so, speak a little bit then, Ezra, about um, Collectible as a company um, owning shares of the offerings of the series. Sure. Collectible does co-invest in every offering that we put up. We think that's important, right? We want to have the same, not the same, but we want to have skin in the game in all of the offerings that we put up. I think that's an important sign of our degree of confidence in the stuff that we're putting up. Um, you know, and I think it's it's just for transparency, right? We also want to be owners in the things that we're putting up as well, right? So Collectible does retain equity uh, in every offering. 
Um, and we could, you know, we have a little bit of a flexible mandate in terms of how much we decide to take in a particular offering, but it's always within uh, our fee structure, which is a, we call it a sourcing fee at Collectible. It's effectively a commission that we take uh, on the successful IPO uh, of items. Again, the beauty of our model is that the fees you'd be paying with Collectible in a lot of cases are dramatically lower than fees you'd be paying almost any place else. You go to an auction house, you might be paying a buyer's premium of 20%. Right. In a lot of cases, you come to collectible, you know, for instance, our mantle card, we're sold a million bucks. I believe the total, you know, buyer's premium sourcing fees were around 7%, 8% right there. So, again, you know, the, the equity and cash component is part of our sourcing fee. Uh, we do co-invest in every offering. And, you know, we, we think, A, we want to because we believe in the stuff we put up. But B, you know, we, we think that's an important thing to align everyone's incentives. Okay, man. Awesome. Um, there's a follow-up question we're going to get to on that in a moment. I just want to uh, bring Dustin's comment up here. It says, more cowbell. Love it. Yeah, I wanted to wear a fun shirt. I knew we had a serious topic tonight, so I thought I'd wear a little bit more of a fun shirt just to put a few smiles on the faces out there. So thanks, Dustin, and, and welcome, and great to see you, buddy. Dustin, and guys, check out Dustin's uh, YouTube uh, channel, The Personal Finance Dad. Um, and I always bug him because his channel is called the personal finance ad. I say it's mostly about sports cards and collectibles, but he does touch on some personal finance stuff as well. Welcome, Dustin. Great to see you. Um, Mike wants to know, do you limit the number of shares a, a single investor can purchase? We do. So we, we do uh, what we call 24 hour share caps, right? So from the time that we uh, launched the IPO, we limit, and again, it varies by offering, but we limit uh, the percentage or the number of shares that one individual can purchase within the first 24 hours. We believe that that's enough time for people to get in if they want to get in, to give access to people who want to participate. But ultimately, if it if you don't get in within the first 24 hours, then that becomes open for whoever wants to take down uh, the balance of the, the shares outstanding. Okay. Back to the question of whether or not the series sells out. Carlos wants to know, are there series where you do purchase the remaining equity that doesn't go to shareholders after the initial period concludes, you being collectible? So are there series where you do purchase the remaining equity that doesn't get, got it. Uh, there are securities laws around this. We are not able to, you know, say there is a minority you know, amount of stock remaining and we need to fill up an IPO to get our commission or to, to complete the IPO. We are not legally able to what's called fill up an IPO. So we can buy shares on the open market, but it has to be uh, during the initial IPO process. And we cannot be the last investors to complete an offering. Okay. And that's pretty typical across uh, securities laws, uh, you know, not, not just in the U.S., here in Canada and for obviously for publicly traded companies um, that are IPOing. So Makes good sense to me. Thank you for that, Ezra. Great, and uh, thank you for the question, Carlos. Check out Carlos's um, YouTube channel as well, because I'm Carlos, and he says, "Sorry, I'm referring to the owner's equity if they choose to sell the remainder." So, so if the seller then says, "Hey, I kept the forty percent, or I kept six, let's say I kept sixty percent collectible, fractionalized forty percent," and then the owner of the card says, "Hey, guys, you know what? I want to lick. I want to." I want to liquidate my remaining 60%. What would happen in that in that case, Ezra? Yeah, uh, there would be a few options. One is collectible can buy out the balance of the stock. 
The other option is the seller will be able to sell it on the open market. Right. So th those are, are the are the two primary ways. Either they we can choose to buy it and own you know, their percentage that we've made publicly available, or they can decide to sell the balance of their stake over time on the secondary market. So if they were to if they come to you and say this, because as as someone who may be an investor in the 40 percent that was offered and now they're going to say, I want to offer the 60 percent, the cards now or the item has gone up in value. What how how would that pricing be determined and would it be offered to would the consigner have to offer it to collectible as an entity first or do they or is collectible required to offer it to existing shareholders or would you do another IPO for that 60 percent or a combination of all those? It's a great question. I, I believe it would be a combination. Most likely, again, it'd be case by case. We have not encountered this yet as a business. Right. So, you know, I, I think a lot of it will have to be assessing market conditions and evaluating the opportunity at that point. You know, again, our model really is taking widely accepted financial market principles and applying them to this category. When you think about, you know, how this happens on the public markets, typically, you know, a lot of cases it might be done at a slight discount to last sale, right, on security. So it might be something similar to that. Again, we as a business have not encountered this, something we're obviously thinking about pretty closely. Our job is to be as transparent as possible, right? to provide access as much as possible. So we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, but whatever we choose to do, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll do it in whatever is in the shareholder's best interest and whatever is in the best interest of continuing to stabilize uh, the IPO for investors. Okay, awesome, thank you. Uh, Ziggy says, great interview, Jeremy, learning so much. Thank you, Ezra, great, thank you, Ziggy. Ziggy has a YouTube channel, daily updates on the hobby, good stuff. Uh, Carlos says, that was the understanding I had from reading the circular. Just wanted to understand it is complex. So thanks for the clarification. There you go. Um, I'll admit, I'm still not 100% clear on that, though, Ezra, because and I think I think it might part of it might be because, you know, you haven't encountered this yet. But there's so many questions that float in my mind if the if the consigner wants to dispose of their his remaining or her remaining 60% of the shares because if I own part of the 40, I'm going to be very interested in what's going on with the other 60, you know, sure. I, because, because that's going to really provide valuation for the, for the whole item itself at that point in time. If the seller is willing to take X, X amount for 60%, you can extrapolate that and come up with what I believe would be the new fair value of the 100%. And I understand what you were saying about the discount, you know, maybe, and that, and that's true. It's got, a, you know, I know, I know in Canadian securities, you can't do it for, you can't discount more than, I think it's 20% from the last, or the average of the last five days of closing, something like that. Um, so, you know, I, I maybe, maybe the right thing to do here is to have you back in, in, you know, six months, a year, even longer, once, once this has happened and we can really have a, a case to study and see how that works. But, um, Thank you for the, thank you for that and for letting me kind of think it through out loud here. Okay, so how when you guys are being consigned a card from a, a consigner, how do you decide what that card is worth and how many shares you're going to offer at what price? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we rely on experts for the valuations, 
right? You know, I think, you know, if we're all being honest with ourselves, I think people are a little confused about valuations in this industry. I don't think people would have, you know, had any idea that that trout card would have gone for close to 4 million bucks, right? I, don't, I think people were, were surprised when some of these modern basketball cards for, you know, went for 1.8, right? So, you know, I think there, there is a little bit of, um, you know, a difference of opinion when it comes to a lot of valuations these days. That's, I think, what's interesting about this industry where we are today is that there are a lot of differences of opinions, especially when it comes to modern, right? Typically what our process is, is, you know, we'll uh, take effectively an average of what we believe are reputable people in this industry. And, uh, and we'll do something that, again, makes sense, we believe long-term and hopefully short-term for shareholders in the fractional space. But also, you know, we need to get our hands on these items as well. We're a two-sided marketplace. Uh, we have to keep buyers happy and we have to keep sellers happy. That is a little bit of a push and pull and some, uh, you know, sort of a little bit of an operational challenge of our business to be completely transparent. How do you, it's, I think, perfect pricing and perfect valuation is probably a fantasy across the board. But, you know, we, we do rely on people who've been doing this for a long time. We rely on comps, we rely on recent sales, we rely on trends, we rely on data, we rely on you know, our belief as to where the marketplace is going. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, you know, I think that you're gonna be able to see some interesting stuff on our platform for sure pretty soon. Okay, very cool. Um, Axonite wants to know, will you guys uh, accept non-graded cards onto the platform? Yeah, it's, it's rare. I would say that, that that's a particularly rare scenario. Given the fact that we're a regulated business, that we're, you know, we're SEC qualified, there was a pretty stringent process in order to get items on the platform in the first place. And I think if all of us in this industry are being honest with ourselves, one of the things that's been holding back this industry for so long are concerns about you know, credibility and consumer confidence and transparency. And so, you know, as best as we possibly can, we're looking to avoid landmines. We're looking to have the highest degree of confidence in the stuff that we put up. Everything is, you know, graded and authenticated by, you know, the leading grading agencies and services there are. Um, and that's and that's generally what our model is. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, I just want to say to Axonite, I don't understand your, your question before that about identifying a card. If you want to reword it, I'll be happy to ask Ezra. Um, okay. So... A question that's come up before in conversations, actually in a, a conversation I had with Carlos the other day, um, was around physical certificates. People mm -hmm. seem to like these things. Um, can you can you speak to um, to whether or not investors will receive a physical certificate to validate their ownership um, of the share of the asset? Yeah, absolutely. We we're giving out digital certificates to start. Uh, that will be sent out for the first four offerings very shortly once the funds uh, or the stock officially transfers. It should be very shortly. Um, so, you, you know, pe people who invest in the first four offerings will receive a digital certificate from us. The, the, the physical ones are getting pretty interesting across the fractional space. I don't know if you've seen some of the ones, but I've seen, um, you know, the, these gold coins for Nintendo. I've seen some really interesting physical certificates. I think it's a great idea. I really do. You know, I think as someone who physically collects myself, I think having something that physically represents your ownership in an item that in some cases, you're right, you may never see or touch or feel some of the items that you're investing in. So to the degree that we can give some degree of tangible ownership back to investors, we'll absolutely evaluate that. We have an incredibly creative team on hand. We'll be tackling that 
uh, in short order. But again, you know, the, our primary concern right now is just bringing the best supply to fractional owners as possible. And I think uh, the items that we're going to be able to release to the public, you know, the ones that we've already done, but the ones that we're doing in the future, I think they're going to be uh, pieces and items that are very impressive in a lot of cases that literally have never transacted before. Okay, good. Thank you for that. Um, next question or topic I want to talk about Ezra, is around the physical security of these assets once they're in your possession. Um, can you can you speak to that? Where are they? How are they protected? Um, you, you know, obviously, I don't expect you to tell us exactly where they are, but you know how how are they stored? How are they protected? And can I, as an investor, come and visit them at the at your office? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, protecting these securities is a huge responsibility. It's a massive responsibility, both to protect shareholders, of course, but also to protect the items. In the case of you know, our 53 Mantle, this is a card that's been perfectly preserved and protected uh, since 1953, right? So this is a massive responsibility to our shareholders, to our users, and to the item itself, in a lot of cases to the seller who might still own an ownership position. All of our items are vaulted and kept in incredibly secure locations all across the country. Um, and so, again, you know, I can assure investors who are participating in our offerings that the items are uh, insured and protected to the best of this industry's capability. Okay. I pre so, so you said all across the country. So the mantle might be in one state and the Jordan rookie might be in another state and the basket of Kawhi rookies could be somewhere else. Is that like, are they, are they physically, um, do you guys, I, I guess, do you guys have fiduciary control over these things? Like, do you, or are they with? Are they in a safety deposit box at a bank? Are they with some third-party security company that has vaults? Can you can you give a bit more detail into that? Sure. Yeah. Again, they they are protected to the best possible degree uh, that we possibly can. We do have vaults in various parts of the country. Um, they are all you know vaults that are in our legal title and in our name, and we utilize partners who we believe have the best in class security mechanisms and uh, maintain the best possible condition of the items. Okay. All right. Thank you. I'm, I want to go back because uh, Ziggy had asked a question about 10 minutes ago. And I, I, in reading it while we're having the discussion, I didn't really understand the question, but I think I understand the question now. So I'm going to throw it up. And he wants to know, how does the seller, I think a consign, uh, the consignor, buy back the shares if they want to? Is there a path or do they have to buy each share at the seller's new price, basically on the secondary market? They would have to submit an acquisition offer like anybody else. They would have to submit an acquisition offer like anybody else, right? So if I'll make up an example, if the shares are priced at $10 and they appreciate the $20, uh, the, the owner uh, of the item, or sorry, the, the partial owner of the item cannot just say, I want it back at $10. They would have to make an acquisition offer uh, at or around, you know, where it's trading. And again, you know, we're, we're in it to protect shareholders, of course, and our fiduciary duty is to shareholders. And we would only entertain acquisition offers if it's accretive and beneficial to shareholders. Okay, great. And we, I do want to get into what, how to, you know, the, the sale process, but we'll get into that in a few minutes. 
Um, before we do, I want to just have a look. Axonite reworded his question. So I'm going to throw it up there and let's see what it says. He says, the first point was how how to identify an item considering that, for example, there is no way to differentiate a FLIR Jordan from another one. At some point, you need a unique ID number. So, is I mean, obviously, a serial number on a PSA or a BGS or an SGC slab would provide that. Um, in the in the in the instance of a raw card, you would have. I mean, I, I don't mean to answer this for you, but I think you just have to apply a unique identification code to that card. Do you guys have you have you guys thought about this? What where are you guys at with this uh, concept? Yeah, you know, all, all the items that we put up so far, and I, I think. You know, I think all the items that we will put up are ones that have been graded, authenticated, that have their own cert numbers, uh, easy identifiers for us. And then again, you know, the items get put into an individual series, as we discussed earlier. A series is just a holding company that owns the asset. And uh, again, so that's another unique identifier is that the items we place in their own, you know, sort of company LLC structure. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Um, all right. I want to say hello, A.O. Rhino. Welcome to the show. Jordan says proof of ownership is key and needs to be verified. Yeah. And I think having the SEC kind of looking over your shoulder helps you guys not only to, uh, to, to, you know, stay, you know, keep, keep your eyes on the prize sort of thing, but it also, uh, should give some comfort, I think to investors, but I, I won't tell them to be comfortable. Everyone has to get comfortable on their own. Um, yeah, that's a tough one to address for sure. Uh, what does Ziggy say? He says, my concern would be as a consigner, I decide to buy back at a nice profit, but a few shareholders decide to hold out knowing they can block my buy. You understand it would be impossible to buy back. Well, let's let's talk about the sale of the entity, of, of, the, of the asset itself, because it's not like the original owner has any power once they've consigned it to you. Like you said, Ezra, they would need to make an offer to, to collectible, for the outstanding shares that that were that were fractionalized, and then and then how does it work from there? And not only if the original owner, if anybody, let's say I decide I want that mantle, and I'm going to come to you, Ezra, and I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to offer you guys just did this for two and a half million. I'm going to offer you three million dollars for the for the uh, tops Mickey mantle. Uh, number, I guess the first question that comes out of that for me is, how do you know I have the money? Do you require proof of funds when a, when a, an offer comes in? And secondly. Um, what's the next step when, or not, when, a, when, when a bona fide offer does come in across your desk at, at Collectible? Sure. Yeah, we, we would vet any, any potential offers very seriously. Of course, we're, you know, we're only going to entertain offers if they're beneficial and accretive to shareholders. Um, you know, the, the process would be is that effectively an acquisition offer comes in. We would take a poll, almost, you know, a shareholder vote for our investors. We would empower people with a vote. Uh, if the majority of people want to sell an item at a certain price, that would be passed up to our advisory committee. Our advisory committee are some of the leading appraisers, authenticators, and partners uh, and collectors in this space. And ultimately, they would have the final say if the item gets sold. Now, that added degree of a check and balance is really there to protect shareholders. This is not something that we've implemented to you know, stop those things from occurring, stop, you know, investors from getting profits. But we want to be cognizant of the fact that there are only, you know, so many shares outstanding. And without that additional checks and balance, that there is a possibility for there to be some degree of foul play, right? So that additional check and balance is put in place, again, to protect shareholders and to make sure that items that could be sold on the platform or from the platform 
would be, uh, you know, a good offer for shareholders to accept. So we talked about a vote and the advisory committee. So just so I understand, if, if an, so if an offer comes in 3 million, what I, what I would expect to happen would be you would go to your team and say, hey, guys, we've got an offer 3 million on the 53 mantle. Okay, let's talk to the advisory committee. Let's see if they think that it's a, you know, and you've already got proof of funds. You know, it's a legitimate offer. The guy can come up with a $3 million. You go to your, your team. You guys say, okay, that, that's a decent, that, that sounds reasonable. We go to our advisory committee. We say, hey, is this as reasonable as we think it is? Should we take it to our shareholders for a vote? The shareholders then vote the original and the, the owner who has 60% can almost make that decision himself. My question is, what uh, what's the threshold of the vote in order for the for the offer to be accepted? Is it is it is it 50 plus one, 50 percent plus one or is it two thirds? You know, like like you often see two thirds when there's a, an extraordinary resolution at the, at the at a corporate level. Where are you guys at with that process? Yeah, Just we're, we're, sure. Yeah. We're doing 50 plus one. Right. So if the majority say that they want to sell. Uh, again, that'll be passed up to our advisor committee who will, you know, really review and dig deep into the offer. Okay. So, so the, the advisory committee says yes. And then it goes to vote because, or, or can the advisory committee make the decision on behalf of all the shareholders of the, of the series? And, and with that, does the, does the consigner take back the same class of shares as the rest of the investors do in the series? Yeah. So again, I want to be very transparent and very honest with all with all the users. That is a risk, right? So when you invest in an item where the seller retains majority control, uh, as long as that's more than 50, right, they would, in that case, have the ability to effectively veto an acquisition offer that comes in, right? So, and I think that's pretty common across publicly traded companies too, that you, you might want to consider or evaluate the ownership structure of a business before investing in it. Right. So, yeah, I want to be completely transparent and honest with that. There there could be cases where an acquisition offer is made and uh, the original seller maintains majority control and they would have the ability to say no to something before it ever uh, you know, goes through the advisor committee. OK, I think the difference that you're going to find between a public company going to vote and and, uh, and with with sports collectibles is that. In a, in a public company, the shareholders often just vote by proxy, right? They just let the CEO make the vote on their behalf. However, the, the CEO and the board of directors want to vote. I should say the board of directors. In this case, I think you're going to see the, the shareholders making their own, you know, thinking about it themselves, voting for themselves. But mm-hmm. if, the, if, if somebody has majority, they can, in essence, like you said, veto an offer. Um, and, you know, and I think, you know, that does offer some risk to the to the share the shareholders because they may have to hold the share for longer than they otherwise wanted to but i think with that i think it's very you know in in the in the name of transparency and responsibility i think it's really on you guys to make all the shareholders very aware of of these you know i don't even necessarily know i want to call them risks but because time is risk it is risk so I guess um, as long as you guys are making that very clear to everybody and I would want to know as an investor, you know, how much did the, how much uh, ownership did the consigner retain? Because if that individual has more than 50%, my vote doesn't really mean anything at that point. They have, you know, they have the votes there. So interesting stuff. 
yeah, thank you for that. I'll make, I'll make two added points on, on this topic because I, th I think that they're really important, right? So one, in terms of transparency, uh, it's very transparent, right? So, you know, if there is a particular offer in which the consigner uh, retains majority control, that will be clearly stated in the application and the offering section. That's not going to come as a surprise to people. And uh, when, you know, if people have interest, that's all fully disclosed in our SEC documents as well. But again, we don't anticipate, you know, everyone digging into a 300 page SEC filing. So we'll make it as transparent as we possibly can on the application. So that's one thing. The, the other area is, which we really haven't talked about so far, I'm sure we'll get into it, uh, is our secondary market feature. Right? So this is a really interesting thing. So, it, the, you know, there are two primary ways to make money through our platform. There is, yes, there is the, you know, us selling an item or receiving an acquisition offer and selling it physically. That's one way that people could make money. The other is just like a stock, right? You can buy something at 10, maybe it appreciates to 13 or 20 or 30, whatever it is. And you could, you as an, as an in, individual investor can decide when you want to take your chips off the table, right? So, you know, the, I just want to make that very clear. There are two ways for people to make money here through the acquisition of an item that you hold and through a secondary market, which will enable you as the user or the investor to decide when uh, and if you want to take your chips off the table. Okay. No, fair enough. And I think we will get into that secondary market a little bit in, in a few minutes here. I do want to just run through some more comments we have coming in. Peter says, interesting. So a 51% vote from shareholders is enough to sell a card. So there is no holding a card hostage. Fair comment. Ziggy says, can I buy shares for others as gifts or for my sons? Do they have to pay any future fees as a shareholder? Could be fun virtual holiday gift idea. Why don't you take that one, Ezra? It's a, it's a great holiday gift idea. I, I remember as a kid, you know, for my grandparents, I'd get like one share of Disney for the holidays. And some, yeah. it was an awesome thing. You know, it's funny. I, I have this memory, a personal anecdote. I have this memory. The first time I ever learned about a stock, I'll never forget this, was the day my sister was born. I was in the hospital and I was there with my uncle. And uh, he pointed to a Pepsi vending machine and he said, I own Pepsi. And I was like, you what? No, you don't. And he goes, no, I, I'm an owner of Pepsi. I own like 10 shares of Pepsi stock, right? So yeah, it's a pretty cool thing to, to, to just say you're an owner. You, when you think of equity shares as, you know, small fractions of ownership in a business, that's, that's really what it is. When you're a shareholder uh, in a collectible, you are an equity, you're an owner. And you might not own the entire thing outright, but you in title own you're a partial owner of that item, right? So uh, we agree, this is a really cool gift idea. This is a really, a really interesting concept. Um, you know, the, the challenge that we come across is that in order to create an account uh, with Collectible, you have to be over the age of 18, right? So, you know, you, you need to, you, you know, the social security number, you have to be over the age 18, but, you know, you could buy something for your kids. You can open up, you know, an LLC or a brokerage account, for instance, in your kids' names with, with you also on the account. So there are definitely ways for you to do it. Absolutely. And again, I think it's a really cool concept, uh, similar to somebody buying you a couple shares of Disney or Pepsi as a, as a holiday gift. Also a great way for people to, you know, for young people to start learning about the financial markets. You know, our vision yeah. can be very, very similar in a lot of ways to buying a publicly traded company on the stock market. But this is sports. This is not complicated. This is, you know, th this is something that people can actually understand. And it's fun, right? Like, I think this is, I think this is what different, we were talking before at the onset, you know, passion and profits, right, is what we loved about uh, this business, this opportunity, this marketplace, passion and profits. 
But the, the other thing is it's fun. It's fun. Like this is not rocket science. It's fun. It's fun to watch your teams. It's fun to learn about the athletes. It's fun to follow sports history. Right. So there is an element of fun to this, which I think is, you know, just really unique about the industry. So again, a way for people to learn about investing, learn about the hobby and, you know, to have some fun in the process and hopefully make some money along the way. Awesome. So Ziggy also wanted to know any, are there any annual sorts of fees that have to be paid? Uh, all, all, all the fees uh, are included in the share price. So, you know, when, when you see something, you know, a $25 share price, the underlying card might be, you know, I'll make, I'll make you have numbers on the spot, it might be $23, $23.50, something like that. And then, you know, the, the, the fees that it costs us to bring these items to the market, and there are fees, there are legal fees, there are broker-dealer fees, there are accounting fees, um, there's our fee, it's a business, we have to make money somehow as well, right? So there are fees to this, but the fees are all baked into the share price. Yeah, and that that's the, that's the key question there. Do we need to to lay out any funds down the road as just a an annual service fee to have the account or anything like that? Um, and and the security of the card, the, the the security of the card for the life for the for the duration of time that collectible has it in its possession, those fees are also built into or baked into the the uh, the share price. I think is what you're saying. Confirm. Yeah. I mean, okay. Yeah. Good. Go okay. How, uh, Yoy, Yoy Tibbetts, welcome to the show. Wants to know how many people are on your advisory committee? Yeah, we've got a, we've got a really talented uh, advisory committee. We probably have uh, four or five people on it currently. We hope to probably expand that to around seven uh, in due time. But, you know, really, um, you know, really experienced investors, collectors, uh, an, an auction house, an appraiser. So there, there's some really talented people who know what they're doing. Okay. Uh, he makes the comment, it sounds like the advisory committee makes the decisions. Um, and then Peter says, and the advisor committee protects a 60% shareholder from accepting a lowball offer. Can, can you just sort of, uh, does that all make sense to you what these guys are saying? Yeah, that, it's, an, an, it's an added check and balance, right? It's an added way to protect shareholders to make sure that Whatever's you know going on is stuff that is hopefully accredited to shareholders, and again, just a way to give added protection for investors on our platform. That you know that there is this way uh, to protect you know sh sh shareholders from any kind of foul play. Okay, uh, Ziggy says he came into tonight as a skeptic. You have my attention and interest. Thank you very much, Ezra. When is the Emmett Jersey IPO? <laughs> So this is a good segue for, for Emmett Smith and athlete relations. Uh, one, you, you may have seen this. We announced that uh, our first athlete ambassador is Emmett Smith. I don't think I have to introduce him too much. Uh, the all-time NFL rushing leader. Uh, I believe he's a three-time Super Bowl champion, first ballot Hall of Famer. So Emmett is coming at collectible from a couple different angles. Uh, he's coming at it, well, one, as an investor in the business. But, you know, more than that, he... He's really coming at this, interestingly, uh, you know, from the authentication and the integrity standpoint. One thing I don't think a lot of people know about Emmett Smith is he actually owns his own authentication company called Prova. You know, this was born out of what he believed was a need for the industry. He would go to shows and he would do signings and this, that and the other. And he saw that. There were a lot of items that he was signing that proclaimed to be game-worn, game-used Emmett Smith items that 
he knew right off the bat he never wore right that they they weren't authentic so you know he decided to take action and create prova to you know protect all of us to protect hobbyists here right so you know and his whole mission is you know to bring further credibility to bring further consumer confidence to increase um, you know the authentication of stuff and he believed that collectible given the fact that it's a registered company and SEC qualified that he thought that, you know, that alone was a big step in bringing added consumer confidence to this marketplace. So, you know, Emmett's coming at it from that angle. He's also coming at it from the angle of, you know, player empowerment and player upside. You know, he, he thought that, you know, one, that players often, you know, sell items uh, prematurely or might not recognize the value of some of the items they have, or perhaps they sign licenses that doesn't give them any upside in the stuff, you know, in their stuff, really, in their stuff. So, you know, he thought that collectible is a really interesting, almost direct to fans concept, where you could list your memorabilia, some of the best items in his personal collection, and share it with fans, share it with audiences, right? So, you know, that's that's what he liked about collectible, and we're thrilled to have him on board. Uh, we will be making a series of Emmett Smith uh, offerings. There'll probably be three of them in the near future. We're hoping one will come out in you know in the next couple months and they're they're pretty they're they're pretty interesting items there's uh, i'll give a little bit of a teaser i can't talk specifics but uh one one it will be a basket i believe one will be a basket concept of some of his uh favorite collectibles from his career his achievements one will be something that is uh a little different a little different one will, it'll be something a little more fun and of a lower share price a lower value but something that's really just fun uh, and then one is something that we're still trying to figure out, but it'll be a pretty cool item as well. Okay, very, very cool. Uh, I mean, Emmett's a big name, so I think he does lend some credibility and uh, and some personality, I'm sure, too. So I'm sure you're having fun with that. Um, so Ziggy just wants to clarify, is that a yes I can buy as a gift as long as they are adults? And I think, I think Ziggy, what, what Ezra is saying is that you just have to get them to register an account. They have to be 18 years old or over. And you can be on that account with them and give them the money and buy it for them. I don't, you don't have a gifting mechanism for, you know, per se in place right now, do you? As of now, we, we don't have an official gifting mechanism. I'm sure that it's something that we're going to build out. But yeah, yeah. You know, if Ziggy wants to buy something for his son or his kids, he can do that. It just has to be uh, in a title holder and a name of someone who's over 18. And, um, and, that, and that can be done that way. Okay. Okay. Amit, welcome to the show. Good to see you. So one more question on the advisory committee that's rolled in here from Rich. He says, so does the advisory committee have power to veto a sale decision that was made by 51 or 50% or more of the shareholders? So they vote, they vote yes. Can the advisory committee come in and say no at that point? Yeah. The, the advisory committee can veto uh, a majority shareholders um, you know, willingness or interest to sell at a price. However, the advisory committee may never get to that point because an offer could come in and a majority shareholder could say, I just don't want to sell at that price, right? So, you know, they, they would ultimately have the ability to veto if it got there, if the shareholder said, I want to sell it, but it wasn't advantageous, they could veto that. But again, the a majority shareholder will have the right to say, I do not want to sell at that price. And I just want to be, you know, I think I think the name of the game here is consumer confidence and integrity, or a new company, right? So I want to be as transparent as I possibly can. A majority shareholder does have the ability to veto an offer that comes in. 
Right, because they have over 50% of those shares, so they have over 50% of the votes. Okay. Uh, Paul says, would there be a sharehold would, would there be shareholder meetings eventually, a chance to maybe see the items meet Emmett Smith? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We're we're working on that right now. We we think, yeah, you know, it's funny. If you look at what happened over the past year, just with the Jordan documentary and the the tremendous amount of interest there was in storytelling, right? And bringing a narrative back into relevance and making it contemporary and making it approachable, right? Um, we're definitely looking to create a lot of content and a lot of access, right? So part of what we'll be doing with athletes, both who put their memorabilia on our platform, but just athletes who are involved with Collectible, we'll be doing a lot of these shareholder events. Obviously, it's a little tricky to do them live in this weird COVID environment we're in. But, you know, once COVID is lifted, we will be doing live events, a lot of live events. For the time being, we're working on uh, some digital events and some meet and greets. So, yes, the, the concept and the idea is that uh, if you invest in an Emmett Smith related offering, you will, you will have the ability to interact with Emmett uh, in some sort of digital capacity. OK, and once this whole thing is over, then any have you guys tossed around the idea of having like actual in-person an, an in-person event type of thing? I mean, that would be a party, I would think. I would I'd love to make it a party for sure. I'd love to make it a party. Yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're going to be doing some interesting things. We're going to be doing some really interesting things. You know, I think that people can look to Collectible to, again, provide a modern approach to this industry, to provide a little bit of a facelift to this industry and to be doing things which are just fun. You know, I, th I think fun is a word that I've used a couple of times tonight, but I think it's important, right? This is, yes, it's, a, it's an industry and it's a business and there is money to be made, but it's also fun. It's sports, right? And so yeah. you know, we're, we're committed to providing unique opportunities and, you know, meet and greets with athletes and shareholder events. Uh, we're, we're planning something really fun and creative for the Nationals in Chicago coming up in, in 2020. It's, only, you know, we, we hope that that still goes on without a hitch, obviously. Uh, but, yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to be as creative as possible. Again, we just, we just launched, you know, four weeks ago. So, you know, it'll take a little bit of time to get all these initiatives that we have in the pipeline uh, to people and to fans and collectors and investors on our platform. But we've got a tremendously talented team, a tremendously diverse team. And uh, I think we've got some really cool stuff in store. Okay, awesome, man. So listen, we, we got to go back to the advisory committee again, because this is a hot topic tonight, obviously, people. Are, and, you know, I'm not surprised, Ezra, because, you know, it's always fun to buy something for $10 a share, $25 a share. And ultimately, it's nice to know you own it. But as I as I said to you the other day when we were chatting, you know, one of my the best mentors I've had in my professional life said to me, anytime you go into a deal, you have to at the at that time figure out how you're going to get out of that deal as well. So I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to kind of gloss over these issues or questions. And I think people are just looking for a little bit more clarity. So the first one, uh, Yoy Tibbet says, so is it that is it that majority shareholders can veto an offer, but they can't accept an offer unless the advisory committee signs off? Is that, that is simple correct. as that? Correct. Yes, correct. That's correct. Okay. Okay. And then Peter says, I am also assuming the advisory committee would give reasons or report on why they vetoed a sale. Is that something that you guys have formalized or at least talked about how that would go down or what it would look like? I love that idea. I really, I love that idea. Again, just in the interest of transparency, again, it, this has not been something that we've had to encounter so far, but, you know, I think 
I think that would be a really interesting idea as to, you know, is to give a transparent response as to why the offer wasn't accepted. I like that. Yeah, great. And I love that you're open to ideas and you're not, you know, kind of faking your way through any of this. You are, you, you, and, and you're being so, you're being very open that, you know, we just launched four weeks ago. So I, I, in a way, man, it's like kudos to you for putting yourself out there, coming on to this show and taking all these questions. Like, uh, I think that, that, that says a lot. And so thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for putting yourself out there, opening up, being transparent and willing to, you know, drill down here. Cause we're getting drilled down here by the, by the viewers as I think they should. And it's sort of somewhat of our responsibility here to do that, to provide as much information as we can. Um, so Rodman, welcome to the show. Rodman uh, says, wow, I missed this very interesting interview. I will watch the review. Yeah, it'll be in reruns uh, from the beginning. I see that now, Rodman. Well, welcome, buddy. And uh, Rodman, I met Rodman in person for the first time at the National last year. So speaking of the National, Ezra, um, I is like you. I hope that that thing goes off without a hitch next uh, next August and we can all meet and shake hands or, or bump elbows, whatever it is, whatever it is that time and at least say hello. So, you know, you've mentioned a bunch of things. We, we've gotten even a bit ahead of ourselves in terms of athlete relations. So, uh, but, you know, I do have a couple more kind of bullet points on my list of things. One is transparency. I think we've, we've talked about that. The other one is value proposition. Um, and we may have touched on it already. If we have, I don't want you to like sit here and repeat yourself, but can you just speak to what you mean when you say the value proposition that collectible offers? Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, we're, we're, we're a two-sided marketplace, right? So in order for a two-sided marketplace to succeed, you've got to offer a value proposition for investors, for buyers, and you've got to offer a compelling value proposition for consigners or sellers, right? So I think both are pretty clear and I'm happy to go into details on both, right? The value proposition for buyers, I think is pretty simple. It's access. If I could sum it up in one word, it's access, right? Again, you, know, you, you look at this, you know, at the stats, 92% of Americans are unaccredited investors. What that really means in layman's terms is that, you know, 92 out of 100 people would never have access, would never be able to afford the stuff that we're bringing on our platform. So you're, we're opening up uh, an investment opportunity, an alternative asset class that has historically uh, been a pretty impressive place to park your money. It also has the added benefit of having low correlations to the broader market. What that means in layman's terms is that it allows you to diversify a portfolio uh, in ways where you reduce your general market risk, right? So you know, that it's access. We're providing access to uh, the top end of the industry in a way that really has not been able to be done before. People own actual equity stakes in these high valuable collectibles that have you know cultural and historical relevance that have scarcity that you know have investable athletes that are iconic collectibles in their category that hopefully have growth potential uh, and the ability to make money over time right so it's really for the the the, the buyer proposition is access and flexibility and liquidity right? And doing so in a more regulated capacity. So that's the buyer proposition. The seller proposition is also pretty clear, right? We're the only company in this space that allows sellers or consigners to retain equity in the offerings, right? So we're providing more seller flexibility. 
we also don't take any seller fees, right? So those two things are really powerful. They're really powerful uh, things for consigners to look at collectible very seriously. It's also a fun way to sell collectible, right? Collectibles. We do, you know, we, we've had four consigners so far and each one of them has just generally thought it was more fun to do these IPOs, to watch you know, them fill up, to see the demand, to see how many investors now uh, they're sharing their items with. You look at the mantle card, 400 and, uh, 410 people now can say that they own uh, the 1953 PSA 10 Mickey Mantle, a real slice of American history, a slice of Americana. That's a pretty cool thing. 410 people can now own something that would they would never otherwise be able to own. Right. That's very cool. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you know, that that's that that's a seller proposition, retained ownership, uh, reduced fees, uh, a fun process. And we also do a lot of content. We do a lot of storytelling on this. Right. So there's just this this degree of of, uh, of content, of level of fun, of uh, seller flexibility, which is quite honestly unmatched in this industry. Awesome, man. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> okay. I have, I have a few other topics I want to get to. We have some comments coming. We're, we're, we're at the hour 20 mark, which I know it, it's get it's getting late out there for you, but we're going to, we're going to keep going here for a little bit longer. So let's get to these comments. Ziggy says, I say this over and over best interview show in the hobby. Thank you, Ziggy. Full respect to both host and guest live audience and hot topic. Cheers. Peter says, and thank you, Ziggy. Peter says, I may have missed this earlier. You commented on fees based on the original share purchase price being that the fees are built in. Are there fees at exit time as well? There will not be fees taken from us. Uh, we will probably take out the taxes on the capital gains from the sale, right? So we'll, we'll probably have to do that just like selling anything else. There'll be capital gains, hopefully, uh, in items that we exit. But we, we will not be taking sale of fees from items that we sell uh, via acquisition. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, here's, uh, uh, Yoy says, appreciate the transparency. Last question, what's your favorite investment you would recommend to potential customers right now? <laughs> I, I am unable to answer that question legally. I, we're, we're not, as a business, we're not able to provide projected returns, speak to the investment potential of anything. So while I would love to answer that question, I legally am unable to. But I'm not, I'm not legally unable to do that. So what I will say, what I will say, and this, I mean, I don't really have an answer here, but what I would say is I, I got to think anything you're putting up on your platform, you guys would stand behind 100% and would recommend to anybody if you could. That's just an assumption. So I'll just leave it. I'll leave it at that. Um, oh boy. Okay. What's this? I, I'm going to, I'm going to read that one from Rich and come back to it in a second. Um, can you speak while I'm doing that, uh, Ezra, can you speak to, to the risk associated, the risks associated in investing in fractional ownership of sports collectibles? What do you see as the risks? I, I, I think the risks are very similar with investing in any market. You know what I mean? Like it's a market. Things are not guaranteed to always go up. There are a lot of things that could happen, right? The economy could take a downturn. The industry could go through a soft spot. I mean, there's a million things that could happen. So, you know, I definitely want people to understand that, that these are investments. These are markets, just like any other market. There could be price fluctuations. Uh, there could be a million things that happen. It's just, it's an investment, just like any other investment. When you buy a stock, 
there's no guarantee you're going to make money in that stock. You go into it with the best of intentions. You do your diligence. You do your research. You hope it. You know you're 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 making the right call at the right time. But there is no guarantee of anything. All we're guaranteeing is access. We're guaranteeing uh, a different way of participating this in this industry. We're guaranteeing you the ability to you know own things you would never own otherwise. And you know hopefully we're bringing a higher degree of consumer confidence, uh, a you know a reduced fee structure. Just, you know, the, the ability to partake in something that's really unique and probably, you know, the way in which this industry is heading long term. Yeah, I think I think one of the risks is time with any investment. It's it's when are you going to get your money out? And that's just going to be market dependent and, and demand dependent, really. Uh, OK, so here's a great question from from Rich. Um, basically, it's a, it's a big question, there, but he's basically saying what happens in the scenario that the market for a card crashes let's say a career-ending injury for someone like say zion um in in terms of the advisory committee like and i i think i think ezra you know the question i don't want to answer the question but i'm gonna i'm gonna just sort of take a quick stab at it because i like to sometimes do this but really nothing would be different what's the market value of the card at that time and if it's gonna be sold at, you know, if the, if the if the shareholders vote to share sell it at a loss, I think that's the question. If the shareholders vote to sell it at a loss, is the advisory committee like how are they going to approach that decision at that point in time? It's hmm. a good question. Yeah, I just want to stress again, it is it's a marketplace, just like anything else, right? When you when you buy a stock, there's risk of loss. There's potentially risk of loss of your entire investment, right? I, I hope that people won't lose their entire investments. These are tangible items, right? They'll they'll have know, some degree of store value. But yeah, I mean, when you're investing in modern cards, there is that added risk of player performance, of player injury. Just it's like any other. I don't have to educate your users on that. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's a marketplace just like any other. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. OK, uh, Steve Menzi, welcome. Says great interview on both sides. Thank you both. You're welcome, Steve. And Steve owns the uh, the sports card memorabilia expo that's in Toronto twice a year. And he's now partnered up with, um, I believe, is uh, a gentleman with the last name Adelstein out of Chicago, who does the Chicago Spectacular. And they're teaming up for the the virtual show, which will be in November, third week in, third weekend of November. So everybody check that out. I will be set up as a vendor at that show. Looking forward to seeing everybody and seeing that show, especially since it'll be bigger than the last one, which was just uh, just before Steve had teamed up with the Chicago show. So that's going to be awesome, guys. Check that out. All right. Um, Ezra Ziggy says he's on the site now. Where do I sign up for an account or do I have to wait for an offering? And I know the answer, but I'll let you give this one. Yeah, sure. Uh, you can register your email at any time, but to actually go through the verification process and purchase something, you have to wait until uh, one of our IPOs is live or uh, you know the secondary market is fully functional and you can trade, right? So our next IPO, a quick little plug for Collectible, tomorrow uh, morning, 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, we're doing a 1933 uh, dual signed baseball by Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. What's pretty cool about this ball is you can see both clear signatures uh, when you just lay the ball flat, right? So which is pretty cool. It's, a, it's an intricacy that you don't always see in these vintage uh, baseballs, you can see both signatures in one pane effectively. Uh, very clear, beautiful signatures. The ball is very clean. Uh, it comes with the original casing. So I'll, I'll stop promoting that particular offering. But uh, our next offering is tomorrow morning, 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And uh, Ziggy, I'd love for you to be a part of it. 
All right. Um, more people asking if uh, it's open to Canadian residents. No, it is not open to Canadian residents. They will make it available to Canadian residents as soon as Canada opens up to this type of an investment. Um, okay. I want to know your opinion because obviously, you know, you're coming in to the, you launched in September. The hobby's been hot. Very direct question, Ezra. Do you think that the market, the way it is right now, the sports card and collectibles market, do you think it's sustainable? I wish I had that crystal ball. I would love to. If there's one thing that I've learned from 10 years on Wall Street is that it is impossible to make predictions. It really is. I mean, how many times have you read and you, you know, you have a pretty good financial background too. How many times have you read market forecasts, right? From reputable sell side agents and brokers, right? Who say that the market's going to appreciate 30% and then the market goes down 20%, right? So what I've learned is it is incredibly difficult to make predictions. It isn't, I have no crystal ball. I don't proclaim to, we don't proclaim to as a company. Uh, what I can say is that we're a marketplace just like anything else, right? If the industry uh, goes through a continued boom, terrific. If it goes through a soft spot, that's fine. It, it might open up better long-term investment opportunities for long-term shareholders, right? So we're going to continue being the platform. We'll continue putting stuff up. And uh, again, it's like any other marketplace. Things will fluctuate. Things will go up. Things will go down. But the beauty of it is that it's a regulated marketplace. Uh, we're hopefully going to be able to provide a lot more liquidity. And again, access. Access is, is the main thing that we provide uh, investors a different way to participate or the only way to, to participate in the upper end of the market where historically speaking, no guarantee of anything future, historically speaking, returns have been pretty impressive and correlations have been very low. And that's when you couple that with just the enjoyment and the fun aspect, that's a pretty uh, interesting proposition. Fair, man. We can't, we cannot predict the future. Um, I, I kind of ask that question to everybody that comes on the show because, you know, you, you get, you get, it's really the same answer for the most part, but you know, you've got some people who are just a little bit more bullish on it. And some people who, who think that we're in somewhat of a bubble that could burst sooner than later, you know, no one knows, no one knows. We're going to see ups and downs, peaks and valleys forever. So hopefully we're going to long-term, the trajectory will be upwards that, you know, not just for, for you and your company, but for everyone in the hobby. Um, that's what I hope for. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm invested myself. I don't want to see them. I, I want to see it go up nice and slow. Like it always has been since I've been involved in this hobby for 40 years. Now I've everything I have is worth more than it was when I bought it for the most part. And that's because I'm a patient investor, but I'm really, I'm a collector first. Who's an investor by consequence, which is the way that's been put. Um, Okay, we still we have some questions. Ziggy is still kind of asking, can I register in time for the offering tomorrow? The last one sold out pretty fast. Can people just go on the the can they download the app to their phone, create an account, and then once the offering goes live tomorrow, they're now able to reserve shares? Yeah, correct. Ziggy can log in at eleven o'clock tomorrow. Uh, purchase shares, go through a quick verification process. I do want to you know be transparent again that. Uh, for people who have never used our platform before or perhaps never used fractional platforms, I would think of it as opening up a brokerage account, right? So you're going to have to put in some sensitive information, and that does turn pe some people off. Uh, but we have to, we're required by the SEC to ask that information. You're going to have to put in your social security number. You might have to link your bank account. Uh, you know, so there is some sense information we have to capture. But again, that's just the nature of a regulated offering. You don't have to do that every time. You do it once. Once you're in the system, you're good to go in perpetuity. 
Um, but uh, so yeah, you can log in at 11 o'clock tomorrow morning, go to purchase shares, fill out the user verification steps, and um, you're good to go. You're good to go. Okay, awesome. I'm going to go back in time because we, we do have, uh, we've pretty much gone through the notes there that I, that I had, um, Ezra, to get through tonight. Um, so a couple of questions that have still come in. Uh, Peter, had this one's really interesting. He says, do you envision purchase offers to be more associated with people wanting physical possession of the card or leaving it in your care after they buy it from the shareholders? That's a really great question. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I envision that a lot of the items would be items that, you know, some wealthier collectors would want in their personal, uh, you know, uh, you know, either, either portfolio or account or whatever. So I, I do envision that there'll probably be a combination of both. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. That's a tough one to answer. I guess it's just really going to depend on what happens. Yeah. I mean, if I'm buying it, I'm probably going to want to take it, but uh, we're seeing more and more of people leaving it with certain consignment companies uh, for the, in their safekeeping. Uh, Amit has this comment. He says, I'd argue that while it is an investment like any other stock, this is arguably a commoditized market versus true blue chip, say Microsoft. The risk factor of Zion is the same as investing in coffee. I'm just going to say to that, uh, Ezra, Amit's a friend of mine, that I that really, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, commoditized coffee. I call them commodity cards, ones that are out there every day. You can buy them on you can buy them on eBay any day of the week. You cannot buy a PSA 10 1953 Mickey Mantle card any day of the week on eBay. It's so that is not a commodity. So really, I, I don't see I don't see the fractional ownership game, especially the SEC regulated one, being uh, really conducive to the commoditized cards, unless you're doing a large basket of them, let's say. I see it more being for the rare, high grade, you know, either vintage or super rare, like, you know, like, like a logo man type of thing from a modern day card. Do you, any, any comments on, on, on these comments? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we're, we're going after the, the upper end of the market, right? We're not going after the, you know, low to mid tier stuff. The Minimum we'd consider in terms of offering value is roughly twenty to thirty thousand dollars. You know, we we project that the average offering could be around sixty to seventy thousand dollars. Again, there'll be offerings that are significantly more expensive. You can look at our mantle; that was a two and a half million dollar item. We sold a million bucks of it. Um, so again, we're 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 going after high value stuff that has scarcity and rarity, and you know, ones that we think are just iconic pieces. Awesome. I love it, man. That makes sense to me. Uh, Rich says, thanks for tackling the difficult, the difficult questions. Uh, this is about a decreasing value uh, card. He says, if the card value comes down, will the advisory committee be trying to make projections to prevent significant losses, i.e. sell now versus wait and see? Uh, by project, I don't know if like, the word projections doesn't make sense to me there. Maybe um, suggestions, like will they Will you ever go to the shareholders and say, hey, guys, we think this card is going to, it's, it's this value. We think it's going to continue to go down. We are going, but then again, you need an offer. You need an offer at any time, right? So um, I'm not sure what, what to make of this one, actually, now that I've thought about it for another few seconds. Yeah, you know, on, on, on this front, you know, I think, I think we might be underappreciating the value of a secondary market here, right? I think so. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think that the beauty of it is that uh, you know, these things will trade like stocks and, you know, there doesn't have to be widespread panic when stuff goes down. That's, 
any other marketplace, right? The beauty of sometimes when markets go down, that's incredibly advantageous for long-term shareholders in a lot of ways. Maybe this is the first time that they can buy into this offer. Maybe this is the first time they can buy shares in it and they you know, stand to benefit from the decreased price long-term, right? Lower prices, if it's a quality thing and there's no you know, going concerns or there's no you know, real issue, it's just a downturn in the market. If you're buying something quality, you know, hopefully over time, that turns out to be a good buying opportunity. So, you know, again, I think I think that the secondary market probably will have to be something that people need to experience and see how it works. Um, but yeah, we, we don't have to sell anything. We don't have to panic sell anything. We can let market forces do their thing. And, you know, if a, if a modern player does go down for a short term, you know, maybe an injury or, you know, they're they're not playing particularly well or what have you. You know, I think that there could be opportunities for longer term invest investors to come in and, and purchase shares at more advantageous prices. Yeah, there's two different things going on here. Number one, there's the there, there's the asset itself and somebody coming out of somebody coming out of the woodwork and saying, I want to buy this card in its entirety from collectible shareholders. That's one thing that can happen. The other situation that can and will happen is you have a secondary market exchange for the shares that have already been that are out there that at the that IPO'd. And mm -hmm. now I as a shareholder, you know, I bought in for $10, but that card is now worth 50% of what it was when I bought it back in time. That share is now worth $5. I can sell it and take a $5 loss or I can wait it out, be more of a long-term investor. So there's I think we're I think somewhat at least maybe, maybe I'm the only one here, but maybe kind of commingling or or confusing these two uh, events, but uh, together. So let's keep on moving along though. Uh, Sean says, uh, if you keep assets in the corporation's possession, will there be insurance costs that need to be passed along? Uh, I mean, I mean, that doesn't really apply. That, that question doesn't really make sense in the situation, does it? Because you have the cards, you guys protect them. It's with you. If I then buy that card from, from all the shareholders and I take delivery of it, it's the, the, the deal's done. It's over. So there's no, now you just worry about your own insurance on your own assets that you have in, in your, uh, under your control. Yeah. I think yeah, we can, uh, yeah, no, for to, to Sean's question, uh, we do insure these items. And of course, when you insure something, there are costs to insure the item. The insurance costs are passed along in the IPO price that you see. And Sean, if you came, if you sort of jumped in a little bit late, we did cover that earlier. So my apologies for kind of, thinking that you might have already known that because we did discuss it. But thank you for the question. Jay Bricks, welcome. My day's been going good, buddy. Thank you so much. Glad to hear you're off work. Hopefully you're relaxing now. Uh, Paul says, I'm not sure that high end will see downturns. PSA 10 mantles aren't like PSA 10 bull bull cards. True that, Paul. True that. Okay, um, I want to, before we get into the Sports Cards Live 5 questions, Ezra, and the card of the day, I want to just get, I want to talk about the competition a little bit because you are not yeah. alone in the space. So um, who are your competitors right now? You mentioned Rally Road already. Are there any other competitors in the space right now that you're aware of? Yeah, look, I, I wouldn't even consider Rally Road to be a competitor, quite honestly, right? I think we're, we're at the early innings of this fractional concept. And in order for the fractional concept to really go mainstream and to land, uh, you know, in as big of an opportunity as we think it is, I think together as an industry, this infrastructure, right, has to continue to expand. So, you know, we root for Rally Road. I think we think Rally Road is doing a tremendous job. 
We think in a lot of ways they've made our lives easier, right? Uh, we have the benefit, I believe, in being the second mover here in this space, which you know, does have a lot of benefits. You can learn from prior mistakes. You can do things a little differently, a little better. Um, you know, so again, we, we root for Rally Road. I think they're a tremendous company. They've got tremendous stuff and they're generating returns for shareholders. So, you know, I, yes, they're competition in the sense where they're also a fractional company. But I think this industry is so nascent so early that really what we want is the fractional concept to become mainstream. I think it's headed there, but you know, I think we're, we're early enough and I think this market is big enough for multiple players. You know, if you look at how many auction houses there are, right? There's you know, dozens, probably more auction houses that have nice businesses and that can, you know, it can support far more than just one or two players. So again, yeah, I think it's a, an obvious parallel to draw that, you know, Rally is a, a competitor of ours, but you know, really, we think highly of Rally. We think they're doing a tremendous job. Uh, we've had the benefit of learning from from them so far. And you know, I th- look, I, I also like where we stand. I, I like I like the fact that we're solely focused on one particular niche, right? I think that niche, just in sports, allows us to just go deeper, really go deeper, to get better supply, to um, you know, strike up connections with people who appreciate what we're trying to do for this industry as opposed to trying to do it for 12 different industries at the same time, right? So, you know, I, I, we're taking a different approach. They're going, you know, off to the entire global collectibles market and we're going after the global sports market today. And, uh, you know, so I, I think that's something that, you know, separates the two companies here. I was going to ask you if you anticipate more competition, but you basically in there said, I think I think you do uh, anticipate more competition along the road. But it's, it's like you said, You've said it. You've said it on both sides. You said they're not really a competitor, but we do. They are in the space. So because of that, it's somewhat competition. But it's not like you guys are going to go up against each other with a 1952 tops Mickey Mantle and a PSA eight at the same time and try and sell shares of that. And one guy undercut the other. That just wouldn't make sense for the industry or for the sec- for the sector. So um, it's almost like if I if I as as a as an investor in fractional ownership, I would have an account with you. I'd have an account with Rally, and I'm going to pick the collectibles that I want to invest a few bucks into, regardless of whose platform it's on. I think you want to just like you're not only going to buy from one auction house or go to one card shop or go to one booth at a card show. You're going to check out what everybody's offering. So, yeah, it's not really competition as much as it is more players in the same space, which I think there's going to be more in my, just because I think it's ripe. And I think it's yeah, a great, I, mean, look, I think, I think anytime where you succeed, right. Where people see opportunity, it's only natural. It's market forces, right. It's capitalism where competition comes in and tries to do it differently or better in the same way we did this through rally road, right. We saw an opportunity. We love what they're doing. And we said, I think we, we can do it better and different. Right. So that's why, you know, we started doing this rational concept, but, you know, I think you, you mentioned something which is really important, right. You know, when you think about like businesses and, you know, the the Buffett term of creating a moat around your business, right? What differentiates a business from a different one? Why are you different, right? You know, I think the obvious moat in this space is your assets, your supply, right? You know, and a lot of these items that we're going to have, these are one-on-ones, you know what I mean? There's only one of them, right? So that's that's a moat in and of itself is... You know that there. You know we have that one item that no one else can have. So yeah, I would look. I would look very closely at uh, the assets, the types of assets we have, the breadth and depth of our offerings as things that will just separate various fractional companies from each other. 
Yeah, I think you're right, man. I, I like the way you put it, you know, and especially the the Warren Buffett, the Warren Buffett uh, reference, which I, I'm a big fan of his. So I read, I read, I read, I read his shareholders report every year, at least the, his, his, well, I don't, I don't get into the details of the financials and the notes too much because that company is very complex, but I do like his report to shareholders every, every year. Um, I, I bought a B share many, many, many years ago, many years ago, just really just to pay for the subscription to his, uh, yeah. to his uh, shareholder report every year. Um, okay, Bobby Burrell, welcome to the show. Says possession was always considered nine tenths of the hobby for decades. Seem like you have, seems like you have an interesting concept here. And that you know, it's a good comment because when you say for decades the hobby has evolved the world has evolved the economy has evolved the way we transact has evolved money has evolved money itself has evolved money is now a number on a screen versus you know versus actual physical currency in your pocket i mean you can still get that but it's just it's just not like that anymore really so very very interesting dave kaplan welcome i don't i don't know what a mythic markets is mythic market is maybe you do ezra he says what about mythic markets did anyone mention them as a competitor what is he i don't know what he's getting at do you uh they they are another fractional company they don't have any overlay in terms of what we're doing i believe they're uh they do you know various pop culture related items maybe pokemon cards other stuff around that i i don't know too much about them but they they are another fractional company Got it. Okay. I'm sorry. And Dave, I apologize. If you would have capitalized mythic in markets, I might've known that it was, you were referring to an entity of some sort. I thought you meant actually like a mythical market of some sort is what I thought you were getting at. So, okay. I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you were aware of that, Ezra. Um, okay. Well, listen, I think we've got through all the questions. We've got through all of the notes, everything I wanted to talk about. So I think it's probably time to get into the PC card of the day. Don't mind the banner on top of our heads, Ezra, but I take this opportunity to, to show off a card from my personal collection, and I like it to somewhat relate to the guest of the night. So it's interesting. Um, this card does relate for a couple of reasons. Um, this card is of a New York Yankee, and uh, Ezra is a fan of the New York Yankees. It's also a Mickey Mantle card, and and uh, Collectibles first IPO was a Mickey Mantle card, a 1953 Tops in a PSA 10. My Mickey Mantle card is actually older than the 53 Tops that you guys did in your in your IPO. So I'm gonna I'm gonna share. I'm gonna show it to you guys here. This is my uh, my PSA six 1951 Mickey Mantle true rookie card. This isn't you know the 52 Tops. A lot of people referred to as the rookie card, but but technically it isn't. It's a first tops card. This is technically Mickey Mantle's rookie card in a again in a PSA six. So that is excellent to mint. And uh, I bought this card in, in September of 2007. So I've had it for just over 13 years already. And I did do this. I'm just gonna uh just to show you guys a, another look at it. There you go. You can see it right there. Nice up. I got a request. Someone said, if you could put it on the screen and make it better, easier to see, that would be nice for us. So there you go. I get to show off my mantle rookie. I'm very proud of it. And again, I've had it for 13 years. Um, so, I, you know, the investment is a, has been a great one for me. Not that it's I've realized anything from that investment. I haven't. I probably never will as I don't ever really plan to sell it. But um, there it is. That is the PC card of the day for episode number 52. And with that, Ezra, we're going to move into the Sports Cards Live 
five questions, which I'm going to hit you with starting right now. So, and I did prepare you for these because, you know, I wanted to give you a chance to figure out how you were going to handle it. So the first question for you, Ezra, is what is the favorite card in your personal collection? Oh, for context, I just, I think sports cards are a really cool thing, right? It's just, it's really a journey back in time and history, the history of America in a lot of ways, right? For, you know, for, I'm sure there are a lot of people who like the history of cards uh, who, who are watching your show. I mean, cards really, you know, with the advent around, you know, right after the Civil War, right? And they, they became popularized with the advent, obviously, and the popularity of baseball emerging as, you know, a real professional sport with the advent and the innovation of photography, which is something that, you know, was obviously a huge deal. And it's just fun to kind of track uh, cards throughout history and to see what might have been happening in our country's history, right? Like the, the seven-year drought, uh, you know, throughout World War II, just really interesting Know, historical anecdotes. You know, I, I'm partial here. We're, you know, we're a fractional ownership business. Um, I could have never owned a 53 mantle physically, but I'm, I'm a proud shareholder of some shares of our first offering in 1953, uh, Topps Mickey Mantle, PSA 10. Such a beautiful card. It really is, you know, we were talking before the show. It is truly a piece of art. It's a beautiful card with the blue and the red trim. And, uh, you know, we're, we're just, we're, we were ecstatic to bring it to the fractional space. So, uh, I'll, I'll give a little vote of confidence to us and to our first offering. I, I'm a proud shareholder of the PSA 10 53 mantle. And, and I have no problem with you, with you making that year, the answer to the question, right? That, that, that's totally fair and, and a great answer. And, and you said, you know, it is a true work of art. It is beautiful. And even though it's not worth as much as the 52 tops Mickey mantle, I believe it's a nicer card to look at the eye appeal. It, it's similar in that it's just, it's such a, it's, it's his head. It's a portrait but it's just, it's a brighter, more, more colorful, just a more enjoyable card for my eyes, at least. Okay. Question number two, what is the highest priority item or card on your personal want list? Hmm. So this is, you know, both something which I would love to own physically someday, but also something that I think would be a cool offering on collectible. We don't have it. Uh, so I'm, I'm not teasing anything, but you know, I grew up in New York city uh, when Derek Jeter really was coming into prominence I was born in 87 for, for context so people can you know start to do the math there. But, and I went through a couple dark years when I was a really young kid of Yankee baseball. And then all of a sudden this rookie Derek Jeter started to emerge back in 93, 94 uh, and really, you know, kind of captured my childhood and maybe a lover of baseball and a lover of the Yankees and a uh, lover of the hobby. So, you know, I would love to get that 93 Derek Jeter uh, foil rookie card. Awesome, man. And, you know, I always say to people for this question, I want you to answer with something that's attainable. And that is an attainable card. You know, in a PSA nine, it's probably six, seven grand, but a PSA eight or an eight, five or a seven, of course, not a problem to, to acquire one of those. Okay. Question number three. This is, this is a fun question to ask you. Where's your favorite place to buy cards? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, well, of course, but yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll not be so biased here with my answers. I'll go sure. back to the place where I bought cards as a kid. I'll give a, a hat tip to a card, a card shop on the Upper East Side of Manhattan called Alex's MVP. It's still around. Uh, it did move from 89. It was on 89th Street. Now I believe it's in the low 80s, high 70s on York Avenue. But just uh, it was a, a place that I spent a lot, of, a lot of time as a kid, and I love that they're still able to survive. If you haven't been to New York City recently, there's a lot of uh, you know vacancies and a lot of retail stores that have 
had to shut just because of rising rents. And obviously COVID has thrown this additional wrench. And I just love the fact that Alex's has been able to survive. And uh, I spent a lot of amazing uh, time there when I was a kid. So Alex's MVP, Manhattan. That's awesome. Last time I was in New York, I could not find a card shop for the life of me. That was that was over 10 years ago, probably. So next time I go, I'll go check out Alex's. I love it. That's awesome. Question four is, if you could change one thing about the hobby, what would it be? Yeah, you know, I think I think collectibles starting to change the things that we personally didn't like about the hobby. And I think the, I think the main, you know, two really were access, right? You know, we, we just didn't, it didn't seem right to us that the best opportunities in cards were only available to the wealthy, right? Sports is a populist thing. Everyone loves sports. Everyone has these amazing associations with sports, right? So, you know, I think the, the previous way of doing it where, you know, the upper end, it was the wealthy transacting with the wealthy on platforms that were, you know, unaccessible or unaffordable to the average sports fan. That That's something which I think needed to be changed. And I'm ecstatic that Collectible is able to at least advance the ball forward when it comes to access. Now, the, and the, the other is just, you know, consumer confidence and investor confidence, right? I think yeah. people have been around this industry know that there's been a lot of foul play, that there's been a lot of bad actors, that there's been a lot of things that we need to clean up as an industry in order for this industry to take the next uh, leg forward and to continue to grow into, I think, what all of us you know, think is possible for this industry. So it would be access and it would be just you know, providing different ways to increase uh, investor confidence, consumer confidence. And again, I think just the virtue of the fact that Collectible is SEC qualified, uh, again, is just a step in the right direction. Yeah, Matt, you know, I just want to say like, I. I'm thinking about it as you're speaking and I'm thinking to myself, the fact that that company, Collectible, Rally, that you guys are taking these cards and again, providing the access, what you're really doing is you're actually providing liquidity and you're providing transactions. So there's going to be, and you're, you're providing demand in a way, right? You're actually allowing for more demand. Like you said, they were only available to the wealthy. Now anyone can get in for under a hundred bucks. You can become a part of this. And that's going to create more, more, more transactions, more demand on these items. And more demand means higher prices. And even people who collect at the lower levels, and by lower levels, I mean cards in the hundreds or thousand dollars a range of values. You know, as those higher, as those higher value cards get up higher, higher in value, you know, it's going to raise everything along with it down below. So it's, I think it's actually. <laughs> pretty important that this that this is happening now and will continue that that the sector in the hobby will grow and your business will continue to you know i was going to ask you earlier what are your plans to scale it's really just put out more ipos i gotta think that's a a big part of it i don't want to sidetrack us from the last question but but maybe i will briefly is that the scale plan is just you know continually attract high quality assets and offer as many IPOs as you can, as you have the capacity for? Yeah, you know, I'll say this, uh, getting our hands on quality items has been the least of our concerns, right? Yeah, I think if people have read the press about us, we have $30 million uh, of items under consignment and we're getting stuff by the day, really are, just by virtue of the the propositions we can offer, uh, our brand getting out there and for sellers realizing that this is an option to them, right? So. Um, supply is, is not the issue. Uh, the issue really is, is that we're a brand new platform, right? And 
just like anything that's brand new to anything, we need to we need to garner people's confidence. We need to you know convince people that this is something that they should participate in and and earn people's trust, right? So I think I think that's far more crucial to us as a business is being transparent, is being honest, um, is doing as many of these shows as we can to get our name out there. And you know ultimately we're confident that the items that we're going to have are going to receive a lot of attention. They're awesome items. Um, but again, I think. You know, our, you know, our first priority is just telling our story, being transparent um, and trying to, again, advance the ball forward in a lot of different ways. And uh, I think if we can do that, the, you know, it'll be a really interesting partnership between Collectible and this industry for hopefully decades to come. Well, I, I want to encourage you guys to, uh, to I like hearing that you'll be at the National next year if it happens in next August. But, you know, I mentioned this virtual expo that's taking place in November and this thing's going to be it's going to be a big deal. They had uh, they had over 5000 attendees at the show in June, which was the first one. This will and the, it was it was, a, it, you know, there were some there were a few ripples throughout. It's going to be much improved this time and a lot bigger because now the Toronto guy is partnered with the Chicago guy who the Toronto, you know, Steve Menzi was in here earlier. He's partnered with, I think it's Mitch Adelstein out of Chicago for the Chicago Spectacular. I'd encourage you to take a booth or something at this virtual show at the third week of uh, third week of November, just to, again, get the brand out there and maybe sign up some more users to the platform. So it might be a great idea if you're not already looking at that. Um, the last question is, what is your biggest hobby purchase or sale regret if you have one? You know, um, you know, I think, I mean, look, you know, I, I, I remember when I went to the Nationals for the first time and uh, I remember I was with my dad and we we're looking at some of these Jordan PSA uh, 1086 Fleers and they really weren't that valuable at that time. And uh, we passed on them, obviously, only to see this explosion over the past year. Right. And obviously we had an IPO the other day where we sold a PSA 10 for uh, for for hundred thousand dollars, there have been other sales. Uh, you know, 115, 122, I believe. There was an, an SGC which sold for four hundred plus, I believe. So you know, I think I think that, that would be a regret. But you know, what I love about this is just again, it's just like any other market. You know, like how many times can you say that I should have bought XYZ stock at a certain price and you don't, right? But but the beauty of the market is that opportunities always present themselves. They may not be the exact same opportunity, but there are always opportunities out there. And, um, you know, I'm sure that your audience is a very sophisticated audience. And, you know, just again, I think this is a really fun industry, a really interesting hobby. And uh, we're just pumped that Collectible is a part of it and really a part of a pretty exciting chapter for this industry. Well, man, you're right. I mean, everybody watching, everybody in this hobby, in the sports card member hobby, we're, we, all, we all would love to go back in time. Ne ne never mind going back in time five years or even five months, you know, go, go back in time five weeks and you can make some serious profits. Uh, that, that's for sure. So, um, you know, I haven't ever mentioned it before, but because you mentioned the national and the Jordan card, um, I was, I remember going, I bought my Michael Jordan in a PSA nine at the Chicago national in 2008 for like a thousand bucks, $900. I think it was, I could have bought a PSA nine Derek Jeter SP foil at that same show for like a thousand dollars that day. And that's one that's, and I, I looked at it, I thought about it, I thought I just bought the Jordan. I'm not gonna buy the Jeter too. I already spent a thousand bucks. Boy, I wish I can go back and get that PSA 9 Jeter now for that same price of a thousand dollars. So, um, all right, man, thanks for taking part in the Sports Cards Live 5. And I know it's, sometimes the questions don't, don't apply to everybody, but they, they apply to you and I, I love the way you handled them. So thanks so much for that.
Um, I want to bring up this comment from uh, Peter from oh, from Peter from earlier. It says, Ezra, thank you for having the patience to answer all the questions in a very transparent manner. Very interesting proposition. So thank you, Peter, for the nice comment. Uh, Bobby wants it says, awesome card to my mantle. Thank you very much, Bobby. Uh, and then Mike says, sophisticated since last Saturday. We were we were sipping fine red, a fine red and talking sports cards. That is true. That's what happened uh, last Saturday. I'm going to put the overtime banner in there since we're over the two-hour mark now. But that's it, man. I think we we can we can wind up here. We've gone th- we've got through everybody's comments and questions. We got through the notes. We got through Sports Cards Live Five Card of the Day. Man, Ezra, I want to say thank you so much again. And, and, and reiterating what some of the viewers have said, thank you for taking the challenging type questions. Thank you for your transparency, your willingness to to speak to all this stuff. It's awesome. It's a it's a it's a it's a hot topic right now. People want to know what's going on. I think it's no, number one very important, but also I think that this this uh, concept of fractional ownership is, like you said, it's early, and I think it's gonna blow up. I genuinely feel it's gonna blow up. I think time is ripe for the picking, and sports cards and memorabilia are probably the last asset to be fractionalized. Not far from the first. You've seen it in in stock in the shares of corporate in. Corporate America, corporations all over the world. You've seen it in real estate. You've seen it in precious metals when they when they go through um, the the process of being, um, you know, uh, held within a within a public entity within a corporation that's sold that sort of thing. And now we're seeing it with sports cards and memorabilia. It was only a matter of time, in my opinion. And um, so. I like to see you guys doing it and uh, and I want to see it being done right and regulated and everyone's protected and safe. So kudos for you for jumping through the hoops, investing up front what you had to to make this thing legitimate and uh, for, you know, somewhat leading leading the way and pioneering it out there for, for the hobby. So I wish you all the best. Again, want to thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you on behalf of the viewers. We do have some thank yous rolling in. Terry wants to say thank you guys. Very intriguing. Paul. Good show. Thank you, gentlemen. I'll leave the last word to you, Ezra, and then we will end this broadcast and see everybody else on Saturday with Drew Herndon. I will be my guest from Let Me Get That Potograph and Hobby Hotline. Ezra, thanks again, man. Thank you very much. No, it's been great. You know, it's important for us to continue to be transparent and to get our, our story out there. Again, just an exciting time to be part of this industry. I've been in it for 30 years, and I just think that this is you know, really at the beginning of something that could become a pretty mainstream way that people transact at the upper end of the, of the band. So, you know, Jeremy, I, I appreciate you having me on to give me this platform. And I appreciate all of, all of your viewers for the difficult questions and for the great questions. Uh, it's my job to sit here and, and try to answer as best as I possibly can. Uh, you know, I will. We're obviously a new platform. Things are always you know fluid. We're growing the business. We're growing our assets. We're growing our user base. And uh, I, I'd love to come on over the course of time and um, give some updates and hopefully share some exciting developments in the future. Let's do it, man. Let's do it. Everybody. If you want to follow Ezra on Twitter and in, and, uh, uh, and, and download their app, you can do that on the, the YouTube, sorry, you can download the app on at the Apple app store, uh, Google play. I believe you can go to, you can follow them on Twitter at collectible app, follow Ezra at Ezra Levine, Ezra S. Levine, and of course, visit their website at collectible.com. All right, everybody. Good night, Ezra. Wait right there for one second. Good night. We will see you all on Wednesday. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games.